This is the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess, and we're beep beeping our way into episode number 81. Welcome to the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast, the tips, tools, and straight talk you want for pregnancy, childbirth, and bringing up baby. And now your host, Kristen Burgess. Hi, this is Kristen from naturalbirthandbabycare.com, and I'm happy to be here with you today. For those of you who are listening to this each week, I want to apologize that it's come out a little bit late on Friday instead of Tuesday, but I really wanted to do a lot of in-depth research for this week's podcast to make sure that I was giving you good information. So when we jump into that topic, I think that you'll understand why. Before we jump into that topic, um, I wanted to let you know a couple of things that I'm pretty excited about. One is that right now we've got the Natural Birth Playbook and the mini class series up again. So if you missed those when they came around a few months ago, you can check them out now. Just jump over to birthbabylife.com slash playbook birthbabylife.com slash playbook then you can download the ultimate natural birth playbook and you can take the mini class series on making sure that you can get through your birthing time naturally and what to do if you feel like labor's stuck we we cover a lot of those good hot topics so check that out the other thing i'm super excited about is i am committed to giving periscope a try for natural birth and baby care for those of you who don't know what periscope is it's a twitter thing but it's not twitter so twitter is the one who created it but basically it's live vlogging so it's kind of like this twitter youtube mashup maybe but basically it's where you can jump on and you can watch people from all over the world doing live broadcasts of varying lengths and on varying topics Uh, and you can check them out you can comment in real time they can see your comments in real time and you can also uh, give them likes which show up as little hearts on the periscope screen anyways I've been watching a few of them and I think it's pretty cool and it kind of reminds me a lot of the podcast except you can give feedback while it's going on it's like a live thing and then you can watch each periscope for 24 hours and some people then upload their periscopes to youtube um and I've, i'll probably try and do that too so that you can so that you can check it out but i'm thinking to try uh for four days a week for the next couple of weeks to do a live periscope four days of the week and I'm thinking some people do them for like a half an hour I'm thinking I can probably commit to about a 20 minute one and we'll cover different birth and baby topics pregnancy and mama topics it'll kind of be like the birth baby life podcast where we cover a wide range of things but it'll be live with me and you can ask questions or I can give you shout outs or whatever and I think that it might be fun I think that it's it's been fun to watch the ones that I've watched. I watched Crystal for Money Saving Mom. I've watched a few of hers and really enjoyed it. So I'm hoping that maybe I can bring the same thing to you. But of course, we'll keep it on the topic of birth baby and life as a mom with your baby. So you can check that out. It's actually periscope.tv. And that's the web address. You can download the app on your phone so that you can interact there live. And then if you want to get to me specifically, it's um, periscope.tv slash birth baby care, 
which is the same as Natural Birth and Baby Care's Twitter handle. It's twitter.com slash birthbabycare. So it's periscope.tv slash birthbabycare. And you can follow me there. Uh, or if you're just listening to this and I've already started doing them, you can check out the one that I did within the last 24 hours. I'm not planning to do one on Wednesdays because my kids have events on Wednesday afternoons. But otherwise, I'm going to shoot for trying to do it at around 1 p.m. every afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. Uh, so I think it's going to be fun experiment. We'll see how it turns out. And I, I would love to have you there and hear from you and hear for what you would like to see for me when you see me up close and personal in real life talking about pregnancy, birth, and baby stuff. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and jump into the topic for today's podcast. And it's a biggie. Is fetal monitoring really saving babies? I would say that this is one of the questions of our times because it's held up as a gold standard in the world of birth and baby care. At least it's held up that way to the consumer, which would be you and I. As we're going to see, it's not really that way to care providers and care providers who are still holding it up uh, as a gold standard of care have probably not read research since the 1980s. So let's let's dig into that. Okay, so electronic fetal monitoring is also called cardiotochography in the UK. But basically it's where you strap a belt to mom and baby and you monitor mom's contractions and you monitor baby's heart tones, which is why it's called electronic fetal monitoring. And what we're talking about mostly today is continuous electronic fetal monitoring, continuous EFM or CTG, depending on where you are in the world. We will touch on intermittent just briefly at the end of the podcast episode, but mostly we're going to talk about the continuous because that's what most women experience when they go to the hospital. Um, now, when when you are birthing at home or even in a birth center, it's more likely that you're going to have intermittent auscultation, which is where they intermittently listen to baby's heart tones and check your vital signs and stuff. But at the hospital, getting it continuous tends to be kind of a given. Now, the big question is, does it help? Intermittent fetal monitoring, or excuse me, continuous fetal monitoring was introduced around the 1960s. And it was immediately heralded as a wonderful thing and something that was going to make a difference for babies and in the outcomes that babies have. It wasn't really given a lot of scientific study at first. It just kind of moved in. And now we can read a lot, and I'm going to give you some more resources if you want to dig into the nitty-gritty of this stuff. But now we can read and we know a lot more, so we know that where EFM was first introduced, there were some conflicts of interest from a profit perspective. And well-designed trials that brought evidence that continuous fetal monitoring wasn't really helping were initially suppressed because there were dollars involved. And I I mean, I have total respect, <laughs> total respect for making money and for making a profit. I mean, I have a, I have a home business. <clears throat> I believe that people should be able to make a profit when they bring something valuable to society uh, so that they can support their families. But having said that, 
there is no doubt that there are sometimes conflicts of interest where profit comes before what's good or what's right. So that appears to have been the case with the electronic fetal monitoring industry, uh, or I guess this aspect of the medical device industry. And you can read more of that sordid story in um, the book Optimal Care in Childbirth by Hensi Goer and Amy Romano. It's really a great book. It's meant to be a book for, for clinicians, so for midwives, for doctors, for nurses, but it's very accessible for anybody to read. So you can pick it up. It's got lots of very interesting information, and if you really want to dig into the science of any topic relating to the care of, of women during pregnancy and childbirth, or mostly during childbirth, it is a great book to look at, not just talking about fetal monitoring, many, many, many topics. But it, anyways, the initial trials, which were well-designed and showed that electronic fetal monitoring didn't really make a difference, were suppressed. Now, researchers continued to study, and eventually word got out that electronic fetal monitoring wasn't making much of a difference. Many of you are familiar with the Cochrane Collection. If you're not, Cochrane does, they do a pretty good job overall. There's some things here and there that we might not like about their methodology or we may disagree with about their methodology. But overall, it's a pretty good source of information. I think that when it comes to pregnancy and birth, the biggest flaw for the Cochrane database is that nobody does studies with normal as the norm. So most studies in pregnancy and birth, and I've talked about this on the blog and the podcast before, are done with women who are in a hospital setting whose labors and births have already been fundamentally changed from what they would be if they had been left alone. They've already been messed with. And that that low risk messed with is like the gold standard. It's not low risk not messed with as the gold standard to, I guess, put it on very easy to understand terms. And so Cochrane can't include studies that include what would be a physiological uninterrupted birth because those studies don't exist. And that's probably the biggest problem with looking at pregnancy and birth. But despite that major shortcoming when we're looking at pools of studies, they do a good job overall of summarizing what studies have been done and the outcomes. And they also do a great job. They always have it have their results, the results of their meta-analysis. And a meta-analysis means that they've taken many studies. Um, some studies they won't include, and they usually explain why not, because those studies were badly designed or have an obvious bias or something. Uh, and then they, then they have well-designed studies that they don't feel like there's bias for are included in the meta-analysis. So all these studies are kind of pooled together um, and, and it's not another study drawn from it like would be in an official meta-analysis in a journal, but more like a summary drawn from all of those results by the, by the people who contribute to the Cochrane Collection. And you can also look at all of those contributors and their information on their website, who they are and why they were chosen. So anyways, a 2006 Cochrane review of 12 studies or random controlled trials, which is another, another name for them, showed that continuous electronic fetal monitoring doesn't help. In fact, it showed that not only does it not help, but babies are more likely to go to the NICU with issues if they've had electronic fetal monitoring. A 2013 update of the review reaffirmed these results, and I'm going to I'm going to link to these 
studies in the show notes so that you'll be able to go to them because I know that some of you really want to look in the research. But Cochrane has showed that not only does electronic fetal monitoring not help, but babies are more likely to go to the NICU. And the studies especially that showed that were um, by Alfirovic, Devane, and Geit. Uh, So that was... Those were the Cochrane reviewers for 2006 that showed that. The studies also show that even premature babies do not benefit from electronic continuous fetal monitoring. So some people might say that, oh, well, full-term babies, of course they are not going to, but preemies and those babies. But studies show that really even those babies do not benefit. And it shows that preemies who receive continuous electronic fetal monitoring are more likely to have complications down the, ri- down the line like cerebral palsy. Studies show one benefit to electronic fetal monitoring. They show that babies are less likely to have seizures if they had electronic fetal monitoring. And we're, we're going to come back to this again, but, but let's elaborate a little bit here. So around 1.5 fewer babies per 1,000 babies had a seizure. So in other words, electronic fetal monitoring would save about one and a half babies out of 1,000 from having a seizure. There is no difference in the long-term outcome for these babies. So surely that one and a half babies that has a seizure is terrifying, especially if your mom or dad watching it, but those babies had no difference whatsoever in long-term outcome. Also, these results were seen only in babies whose moms had high levels of synthetic oxytocin, that would be Pitocin or Syntocinon, and had an amniotomy done, which means that her waters were broken artificially, artificial rupture of membranes. Okay, so the babies who had more seizures also had recorded that they had higher levels of Pitocin and artificial rupture of membranes. So do we know that that, that wasn't the cause? It certainly seems like those things could possibly cause some distress for babies. We know that those things cause some distress for babies. Uh, So that's actually why sometimes the Cochrane Review is questioned for why they included the study, that study that showed those confounding variables in there, but they did. So in other words, essentially the seizures could have been iatrogenic seizures. In other words, they, they were caused by what the doctors did. And then, of course, the one conclusive result that we know from electronic fetal monitoring, without a shadow of a doubt, is that it increases the rate of cesarean section. And it doesn't increase the well-being of babies. So we have to ask, uh, why are we performing surgical operations on more moms based on evidence from a technology that shows no benefits? To continue, not only does electronic fetal monitoring show no benefits, it's possibly also harmful. Now, internal electronic fetal monitoring is slightly different, and it definitely shows potential for harm. But when you have electronic fetal monitoring, a belt around your abdomen, that that's monitoring baby's heart rate and also your contractions throughout your birthing time. There's a variation called internal electronic fetal monitoring, which is where they take the portion that tracks baby uh, and they screw a probe into your baby's scalp to be able to get a better reading of your baby's heart rate. 
In order to do that, they have to rupture the bag of waters, they have to screw an electrode into your baby's scalp, and there has to be a wire for the monitor running through the vagina or birth canal up to baby. It increases the risk of infection for moms because there's this wire which is transmitting electronic signals and germs up in the birth canal and going up to baby. And by that logic, we can conclude that it also increases the risk of infection for babies, including death or morbidity from the wound in the scalp. I mean, they'll tell you that the benefits outweigh the risks, but it's really something to think about. Any of you who have listened to, for instance, mama baby birthing Q&A calls, I get asked about vaginal exams and things, and I'm I'm pretty staunchly against the thought of routine vaginal exams during birth. I think they're pretty useless. They don't give much information, and it should only be really if there's a real reason or if mom really feels strongly that she needs one. And I also want to encourage you ladies that you don't need vaginal exams to measure your progress in your birthing time. You can work with your baby and, and listen to your body and listen to your baby. And if you don't know what that means then please, again, jump on that mini class series that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, birthbabylife.com slash playbook. Birthbabylife.com slash playbook. We talk about some things that you can do during your birthing time to work with your birth and your baby, and, and we also talk a little bit about mama baby birthing classes. And those classes are designed to help you understand what does it mean to trust my body? What does it mean to trust my baby? What does it mean to work with my baby? So if, if all of that that I just said kind of like went over your head, you're like, what does that mean to trust my body and trust my baby? How in the world am I going to listen to my body during birth? I need somebody to tell me my progress. Well, let me encourage you that you really don't. You are, you are enough, mama. And so I've got resources to help you with that. But, but I won't go down too much of a rabbit trail. So essentially, you know, I'm not a fan of vaginal exams because even if they put sterile gloves on, they're moving stuff around. They're creating tension. They're creating, they're creating problems where there wasn't a problem. And internal electronic fetal monitoring brings those same risks times like a bunch more. And I know times a bunch more is not scientific, but it's me. And you're getting me here on the podcast as well as me presenting evidence for you. So essentially, internal fetal monitoring, just it increases a lot of risks and, and the studies just don't support it. But even, even regular continuous electronic fetal monitoring, where the belt's around your belly, brings risks. It restricts mobility. There was a survey done uh, by Childbirth Connection, the Listening to Mothers 2 survey, and obviously there was a Listening to Mothers 1 as well. But once contractions get regular, it, it says that when moms are surveyed, most of them stopped moving. And why did this happen? It's, it's because once the contractions are moving, we need to monitor you. We need to check you. We need to check on baby. And there's these belts on moms. They can't move. Because if you move, it messes up this monitor or that monitor. And the nurse comes running in to readjust them and make sure that everything looks okay. You can't get in the shower. You can't get in the tub. You can't sit on the toilet. You can't sit on the birth ball and ro rock your hips. You can't lean on the windowsill and rotate your hips. You can't hang on your partner. It's just so... There's so much that you that you just can't do. It's I I just I put up a gallery on natural birth and baby care this week. A, a birth photographer gallery. You should go check it out. Um, I think it's naturalbirthandbabycare.com/slash 
24-birth-photos. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes too, but it's just beautiful. But I had birth photographers from all over submit p- pictures to me for that gallery, and I featured so many of them, and I'm hoping to feature more. But seeing the ones of moms birthing in hospitals with monitors on, there were a lot of moms who were, I guess, in more progressive hospitals, and they just didn't have so much of that going on. Um, there were they were able to they were able to move but the moms with monitors on they they were all pretty much stuck in the same position and all the pictures all these different moms because mobility is severely limited and you can't do things to work with your baby another thing in the I know I keep going back to the mini class series but really I, I I just really listened to what you ladies wanted and what you dads wanted too. It's really targeted to both moms and dads because there's a lot on how you can help dad. But like one of the things y'all are really worried about is what do I do if, if labor gets stuck? What do I do if things stall? And what I talk about is is you need to be mobile. And I, I share a few funny stories about that that kind of prove that mobility helps you. It helps your baby move. See, the thing is, is is mobility helps your baby move. So your baby is is rotating and turning. And, and we did the BBL podcast about your baby's experience of birth. And I talk about the movements that your baby goes through in that podcast. And so your baby is not... Your baby is not static. Your baby is not staying still. Your baby naturally, instinctively moves down through the birth canal and rotates down through the birth canal. And your movement, mom, is part of that. So you don't you don't want to be in a stationary position. You don't want to be stuck in that semi-squat where where the sacrum, that's that's the plate above the tailbone. So if you feel your tailbone, there's a plate there behind. That's your sacrum. You know, you want, you don't want that to be immobilized during your birthing time because then it's kind of like poking up into baby and, and who can turn and rotate with something poking into their face, honestly. So moms need to be need to be mobile. Even if you're still in bed, getting on hands and knees or side-lying or something is better than being stuck in that semi-squat with the, with the monitor attached to you. So the monitor, it causes problems above and beyond the fact that it doesn't help. It actually causes problems. And a great quote from uh, Optimal Care and Childbirth is that electronic fetal monitoring is, quote, antithetical to supportive care. So it's the antithesis. It's the enemy of supportive care. Why is that? It's because when a mom is on a monitor, there's a machine beeping in the room and men especially tend to be drawn towards that machine. They're they're watching the output on that monitor because boys and their toys, you know that's true throughout the entire lifespan of a guy. Is they like their toys, they like machines, they like things that go beep, zoom and vroom. And so when that monitor is going, that that becomes a focus for many dads, even if they don't want it to be, even if they're conscious, they want to be there, they want to be supportive of their wife, of their partner. They, that that kind of has a draw. And it really has a draw for everyone in the room, except maybe an experienced doula who's used to them and can just tune it out. And the monitor also, like nurses come in the room and they check the monitor first. They don't check the mom. But a monitor also allows a nurse to monitor many women from down the hall at the nurse's station. So she's not even there. So she's not even there. So th- there's just the level of support the level of human support 
that could and should be there for birthing moms for as much as they want it is lower when a mom is hooked up to a monitor and, and people are paying attention to the monitor instead of the mom. That's a big problem. So we've talked some about the fact that studies don't support the use of electronic fetal monitoring. We've talked about some how electronic fetal monitors can actually cause harm. Let's also talk about something. This is huge in my mind. That's it's never actually really talked about, okay? But but the question is are poor outcomes in babies really related to non-reassuring heart tones? Is this really even the problem? Is what's going on really the cause of quote-unquote birth injuries or even deaths in babies? So is the link between fetal distress or as it's, it tends to be, it's not called fetal distress as much today. It's called non-reassuring heart rate patterns or non-reassuring heart tones. Is the link between fetal distress and, and baby injury even valid. The link is actually very weak. There's almost no link. And in addition, low APGARs right after baby's born are not predictable of brain injury or death in a baby. So low APGARs, which might be caused by, uh, by hypoxia in the womb, which we'll come back to hypoxia, that's oxygen deprivation. But the low APGARs that are caused by that um, are not really associated with poor outcomes, either death or long-term disability. It's just that it's, <coughs> it is essentially a flawed premise, a flawed hypothesis. And I told you that we would come back to neonatal seizures. Remember we said that seizures are increased slightly and we talked about possibly the Pitocin and stuff being a cause of that. Studies have been done into this even more and have shown that these neonatal seizures can be caused by an overload of IV fluids and again the synthetic oxytocin and the artificial rupture of membranes. So those are three things that we're doing to moms. We're giving moms IVs in labor and, and we're going to talk and on natural birth and baby care more about that in much greater depth very shortly so watch watch naturalbirthandbabycare.com slash blog that's where you want to go to see what's new so we're going to tackle the IVs head on but IVs are something that we do to moms giving moms synthetic oxytocin that's pitocin or syntocinon and breaking moms waters artificially even midwives do that that's things that we're doing to moms and truly Truly, we're playing with fire. And I know that I said that those those seizures don't cause long-term complications, uh, but, but who wants to see a baby have a seizure? And when we think about it, it's probably much more likely that those things that we're doing to mess with moms and babies are more likely the cause of the seizures rather than the absence of continuous electronic fetal monitoring. And then there's also injuries caused by rescuing, quote-unquote, rescuing babies Instrumental deliveries done, vacuum extraction, forceps done when there's non-reassuring heart tones, damaged babies, um, especially like vac vacuum extractors, sometimes even fatally, they just cause problems for babies, hemorrhages and things like that that are scary. Plus, clamping baby's cord too soon because we do an emergency delivery 
it removes all of a baby's oxygen supply and 60% of his or her blood supply immediately. I know, Sadie, it's upsetting, isn't it? It's just, you immediately cut that off. You immediately take that away. Um, but, but those, the bad outcomes from all of those things are attributed to the fact that the heart tones were low. We don't look at what we did after, what might really be the cause. Okay, so to summarize, again, why doesn't electronic fetal monitoring work? Because it's this golden girl that's supposed to solve all the problems. Again, the hypothesis that underlies electronic fetal monitoring is inherently flawed. Okay, remember I, I mentioned hypoxia a minute ago, that's oxygen deprivation. And then perinatal, that means in the weeks surrounding birth. You're going to hear both of those in the quote I'm about to read. For electronic fetal monitoring to work, it's underlying hypothesis that slowly developing hypoxia in labor is the major cause of permanent brain injury and perinatal death has to be valid, but it is not. And that quote again is from, uh, from Gore and Romano. And so let me paraphrase it. So for continuous electronic fetal monitoring to work, to justify that belt being around mom and baby, the underlying hypothesis that slow oxygen deprivation in the womb is the major cause of permanent brain damage or baby death has to be valid. But that hypothesis is not valid. Study after study after study have shown that not only does electronic fetal monitoring not help, but the hypothesis underlying electronic fetal monitoring is flawed. It is incorrect. Goer and Romano go into a lot more detail on this. And they also go into a lot of detail on how the body's adaptive state actually helps babies experiencing it. So when, when babies go into a hypoxic state, an oxygen-deprived state, there are adaptive mechanisms that the body brings on board to help compensate. That happens even in a new baby. Bless you. And a baby who... Birth is mildly hypoxic anyways, just inherently. And, and a baby who goes into this protective state is more likely to, to do okay as opposed to a baby who has... who's how do I say this, to a baby whose adaptive mechanisms are circumvented. That's a good way to say it. So if a baby is starting to work on these, bringing these adaptive mechanisms on board to complete the rest of the birth process, um, and then that's circumvented, say, by an immediate surgery or something, there's evidence to show that the long-term damage is greater for the baby who had that process circumvented than the baby who was allowed to complete those adaptive mechanisms. Uh, and, and again, Goer and Romano go into that a lot in the book. It gets really sciencey, more sciencey than I thought I should probably get on the podcast, but it's there. Um, and so, you know, you can read more about it. So I can actually give you, I, I was reading it on Kindle, but 644 of 7, 1720 is about the reference point at which that's at. Uh, so, yeah, so it's very interesting to think about. And the studies are even long-term studies, like showing first graders who were allowed to, to complete birth in the hypoxic state doing better than first graders who had an emergency delivery for the same conditions type thing. So, I mean, we're talking like some looking at long-term outcomes too, which is really very interesting. But, but to remember, to summarize, 
the the hypothesis that slight oxygen deprivation during birth um, is killing babies or causing long-term brain damage is it's flawed and so therefore the entire basis for which we implement fetal monitoring is flawed it's not helping and it could possibly be harming okay gloria lemay is an is another amazing midwife and researcher and this quote is from her the only thing electric, electronic fetal monitoring has been proven to do is raise the number of cesarean operations that are done. In fact, Gloria even notes that the FDA has issued a citation to Philips because they have fetal monitoring machines in the hospitals that are inaccurate. Now, they didn't order that those machines be pulled off the market, so we have these machines in hospitals that have been given an official government citation for being inaccurate, yet still they're being used. Is that That's infuriating and disturbing to me, and I kind of hope it's the same for you. Um, but it kind of it kind of underlines that what I said at the very beginning of the podcast that that if this is still being used in hospitals, maybe it's because the hospital staff, hasn't really read the medical literature or the FDA bulletins for the past 20, 25, 30 years since the research stopped being suppressed on this. Okay, so before we leave this episode, what do we do instead? You know, because the, because the hope behind electronic fetal monitoring, besides the fact that it was beep beepy machinery that sold for a lot of money, was that it was going to help save moms and babies, and especially babies. So what do we do instead? Now there is, and I mentioned this at the very beginning, there is intermittent auscultation, which is intermittently listening to fetal heart rate. Now there's some debate on that. I'm gonna link to uh, Sarah Wickham's blog, another wonderful midwifery researcher and she has a post which has a quote from paul lewis this is what he says this relatively innocuous but frequent intervention may impede the natural process and progress of labor it might be better than ctg monitoring but that in itself is not reason enough to advocate its use so lewis and his it was a 2013 study he concluded that um that even intermittent fetal monitoring may really have no benefit and possible, you know, possibly interrupt and impede normal natural labor. But most moms want to have some intermittent monitoring going on during their birthing time. And that's, that has been shown to, to help detect problems and things. Hospitals will say that they don't have the staff or the money to do it, but certainly if you're birthing with a CPM, a certified professional midwife, a CNM, uh, in a hospital setting, usually it's CNMs that have privileges in hospitals, uh, but she she should be able to do it, or you might be able to request a dedicated nurse for you, uh, and you should advocate for yourself and your baby, and then if you're at home or at a birthing center, your midwife is probably going to do that, and you can talk to her about your feelings on it, and if you ladies are interested in more on the pros and cons for or against intermittent fetal monitoring, we can do another podcast episode on that too, but another big Another big thing to help is to have a nurse or midwife for basically near continuous support. A doula is also pretty much near continuous support, but the nurse or midwife, she also has some clinical knowledge, which is definitely not to be, um, not to be minimized. So 
their being there continuously means that they're able to watch you. They're able to look at things. They're able to assess how things are progressing uh, with you and baby without necessarily even having to use any sort of monitor or Doppler. I mean, a, a good experienced nurse or midwife can tell a lot about what's going on with a birthing woman just by watching her, okay? And then they're there to encourage you, to help you change positions, go to the bathroom, uh, make sure that you're getting some energy. Going back to that, the mini class series, I talk a lot about the importance of getting energy. So she's there really to help you with that. That's been shown to help uh, increase good outcomes for babies. If things are non-reassuring, so if there are non-reassuring heart tones, changes of position, often works to bring more oxy oxygen to the baby. If you've had augmentation or induction, so you've got synthetic oxytocin, pitocin, syntocinon on board, turning that down or off often results in baby doing well. Um, and then something else that's interesting is something called digital scalp stimulation. And that's something that's done that is, uh, that has been shown to be pretty accurate in determining if signs of fetal distress are if, or if it's actual distress or if it's kind of like a false positive and i'm i'm actually going to quote from the wikipedia on this i know usually we don't want to quote from the wikipedia but they have a great human readable definition uh and then there's also links to the article to to scholarly studies with more information so i'm going to put the wikipedia link in the show notes and you can go check out those scholarly journal studies but basically a firm digital pressure on the head, so digits, fingers, so firm pressure on the head or a gentle pinch of the fetal head with a clamp is used for stimulation and an acceleration of the fetal heart rate of 15 beats per minute lasting at least 15 seconds is suggestive of normal fetal outcomes. So in other words, they basically just gently press baby scalp. It, it doesn't have to rupture the membranes. Of course, it does involve a vaginal exam, but basically they're gently massaging baby scalp in the womb Bags of waters don't need to be broken, and most babies will respond by having their heart rate speed up. Again, those parameters were 15 beats per at, at for at least 15 seconds. And that's suggestive of a healthy baby who's doing just fine. So that's something that you can ask them to do if they're saying that there are non-reassuring heart tones. And then the another really big thing to do is delay cord clamping when baby's born because that is baby's oxygen supply. Um, that is baby's blood reserves. There is important stuff going on there. There's important transfer of oxygen. Clamping baby's cords is just, it's, it's cutting things off right in the middle. And babies are born normally, um, they need to pink up. That's normal. They need to get that oxygen and their bodies are expecting all that blood, all their blood that is circulating to end up in them all their iron stores, all of their everything. So those are some things that are protective. But essentially the, I mean, the jury is out. The verdict is out. The jury's done its work. The verdict is out. Fetal monitoring is not saving babies. Continuous electronic fetal monitoring is not saving babies. It might be harming babies. And even the underlying theory behind why we would implement fetal monitoring has been proven without a shadow of a doubt to be false. So, we need to say goodbye 
to this era of obstetric care and we need to let moms move and work with their babies. And you should advocate for yourself and your baby so that you can move and work with your baby during your birthing time. And choose an experienced care provider who knows how to watch over you, safeguard you and your baby without relying on the beep beep of a machine. Okay, ladies, with that, again, I encourage you to check out the mini-series, birthbabylife.com slash playbook. And also, if you're feeling adventurous, join me over on Periscope. Um, it's periscope.tv slash birthbabycare. Or just if it's easier for you to remember, you can head over to birthbabycare.com slash periscope. Uh, join me there. Uh, I'm hopefully going to do uh, four a week for the next couple weeks, and we'll see how that goes. Maybe that'll be a lot of fun. Of course, I'll still be bringing you the podcast as well because I know that so many of you want to be able to listen when you're on the run or when you're cleaning the house or when you're up in the night nursing your baby or even while you're having your baby. Oh, Sadie. I've had a few of you who've said that you listened to episodes of the podcast while you were early in your birthing time, which was, that was really amazing for me to hear, and I appreciate you sharing that with me, so thank you. Um, but having said that, I look forward to seeing you next week check out those resources. Um, and please, if you have a minute, leave a rating in iTunes or over on Stitcher. Let other families know that you appreciate the podcast and then you get a lot from it. And I will talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening to the Birth, Baby and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess. For great resources and tons more info, visit www.birthbabylife.com visit www.birthbabylife.com